Good morning, church. So good to be with you again and uh, to be with some of you for the first time in a while. And so I, I just love how each week we're seeing more and more faces that I haven't seen in a while. And I know in the coming weeks, there's some of you joining at home that I know uh, uh, will be here in the coming weeks as well. And it's just exciting this season that we're moving into as a church. So if this is your first time back in a while, welcome back. It's good to be together. And I know that there's a little one in our church, Laheva McDonald, little baby girl, her first time ever in church. She's just a newborn. Where is she? She's right in the back corner there, little Laheva. So we welcome Laheva to church. And I always just think it's really special. You know, when we sing together, and, and like this little one, they're hearing worship for the first time. Do you, know how, do you know, like you are shaping the life of that child this morning in the way that we worship and what they hear and experience from infancy. And so we have that incredible role uh, alongside the parents to have that sort of impact. Um, one person that, that we, we don't see this morning and that we won't see here again is Anne Heinrichs. And so many of you heard the news that Anne went to be with Jesus on Sunday. And if you didn't know her personally, you would have recognized her because her, her, uh, her husband lovingly would wheel her in her wheelchair almost every Sunday without fail, position, position her in the very back. And that was Anne. And uh, she's now with Jesus. She passed away last Sunday about uh, within the hour after coming and hearing the sermon. So Al uh, assured me there's no connection between those two things. The autopsy report did not say long-winded sermon on, on there. But um, just be mindful that uh, Al has lost his wife of 56 years. Be praying for him and the family and loving him in the ways that we're, we're able to. Got some young people in the front row. On Friday after youth group, uh, I, I overheard them talking about some of the teenagers, how excited they were now that social distancing was a thing of the past. They were just going to gather together again. They would normally sit up there, all together the youth, and, I, and they were excited. And I said, you know what? I want to be one of those churches where the youth come and sit in the front row. Right? And they got their Bible open, and they're eager to receive. And they said, all right. So there's a few of them here. Well done. And, uh, and this is good. I expect this to grow, all right, youngins? I expect this to take the front row, the second row, the third row. I want to see the young people up here eager to receive. That's good. So uh, family, every family, every family has a set of rules, whether spoken or unspoken, that, that govern how they do life, right? The things they do, the things they say, every family has a set of rules. And I think back to my childhood and I can remember some of the rules. Like for instance, on those occasions when we had dessert, which was always special, we had this rule, and, and, and maybe you had this rule too, you were not allowed to touch your dessert until the host sat at the table and cut into their cheesecake. And once the host cut into the dessert, that was your cue that you could eat. And so, like, us kids would be sitting there, our fork would be vibrating in our hand as mom was doing stuff in the kitchen. Come on, mom. <clears throat> Maybe you had a rule like that. We couldn't touch the dessert till the host touched the dessert. We had rules about things we could watch on TV. I, I came from a family where I was not allowed to watch the Smurfs or Care Bears or Teddy Ruxpin, but I was allowed to watch Simpsons, oddly enough. So some of you, that won't make any sense, but... I could watch Simpsons, all the crudeness of that, but Smurfs and, and you know, Care Bears that had like magic and there was a wizard in there, so we couldn't watch those shows. They were off limit. And some of you, like it was the opposite. Um, 
words that we weren't allowed to say. Right? Um, and, and so, then you, then you, so you have all these, these rules, and then you marry someone from a different family that had different rules. And so I remember, actually, that it might have been maybe the first time I went to the Bankson home. I, I knew I'd said a wrong word because it just got cold in the room. I said, I said, this, I said, something sucks. This sucks. I learned that that was not a word that you said in the Bankston family. But then I, I, I remember kind of feeling uncomfortable when, when I first heard someone in the, their family say, holy cow, or something. <laughs> in the Hildebrand home, nope, God alone was holy. Cows weren't holy, and smoke wasn't holy, and nothing else was holy. Right? So we kind of figured it out. Like, when I grew up, you opened the, uh, the, the stockings, the Christmas stocking stuffers. Every Thursday evening in December, prior to Christmas Day, was stock, stocking stuffer evening. And we would go to our stocking. We get to open one stocking stuffer every Thursday evening before Christmas. And then I married someone who opened stocking stuffers on Christmas morning. How stupid. <laughs> right? Right? Anyway, so then we had to, like, figure that out. Like, we, came, we, had, we had, like, two different sets of rules, and we had to navigate that. And to some degree, maybe you still are, some of those things. But what were some of the rules you had in your family? Like, every family has some rules. Maybe some are coming to your mind. You know, the people of God, the people of Israel back in the Old Testament and, and uh, those people in Jesus' day, they had rules that had been given to them by their father, by God. He had given them a set of rules. We find them in our Old Testament, the law of Moses. In fact, even in Jesus' day, they had kind of sorted through the law of Moses and they had extracted a list, a complete list of all the family rules, 613 of them. So 365 were negative rules, do not, those were the do nots, and then they had 248 positive rules, do. And so they had these 613 rules that governed life, what they did, what they weren't to do, what they were to say and not to say. And now we're coming to this place in the Gospel of Mark where we see that this kingdom that Jesus has come to establish comes into conflict with the family rules. With this whole, it, 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 this thing that Jesus is establishing is at odds, we will find, with this whole religious system and mindset. And so this morning, as, as we continue this series, we've called Kingdom Come, where we're exploring this kingdom that Jesus has established, uh, you know, of which all of us are a part if we've put our faith in Him where we're looking at what, what does it look like to live out this kingdom in our lives. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the place of laws, rules within God's kingdom. You find out very early on in the gospel that Jesus, to many, was a rebel. He was a rule breaker. He was a law breaker. Already in Mark chapter 3, we find how he falls afoul of the religious leaders' laws. In, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus' disciples are walking by a field, they're hungry, there's some wheat, they, they take some of the kernels out of the head of the wheat, and, and they eat that, and word gets back to the Pharisees, and they become undone that Jesus and His disciples would break the rule. Now, it wasn't necessarily God's rule. You see, they had added some rules, because there were some gaps, and there were some silences 
in, in, in the commands that God had given to them. And so they filled the gaps with some more rules. And this became known as the tradition of the elders, these added rules that would govern the family. And, um, and they took on kind of an authority of their own. And so this command to keep the Sabbath holy, well, they, they, you know, they made sure that everyone kind of was very clear on every point what you could do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And so they had added in Jesus' day already 39 different prohibitions about uh, what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. So here's a few things in Jesus' day that it was against their rules to do on the Sabbath day. You were not allowed to make two loops with yarn. You can make one but not two. There was no crocheting on the Sabbath. Thank God. You couldn't make two loops. You weren't allowed to weave two threads, and you couldn't separate two threads. It was against the rules to tie a knot or to untie a knot. You, wouldn't, you couldn't trap a deer or salt the deer's meat, or you, you couldn't cure its hide. That was Rule 29. Uh, rule 32, one was not allowed to write two letters together. You could write one letter, but you couldn't write two consecutive letters, and you weren't allowed to erase two letters in order to write two letters like the next day. Okay? Um, you weren't allowed uh, to build. You weren't allowed to put out a fire. That was Rule 36. So if your house, you just did not want your house to catch fire on the Sabbath, Right? There'd be nothing left by, by the next day. So you would not be able to put out a fire on the Sabbath. 38, you couldn't uh, use a hammer. Uh, 39, you couldn't transport an object from one domain to another. Right? So it actually, you were not allowed to reach through the window of a home from the outside to receive a pie from the person and to take it out. Right? To take it from one domain to another. That violated the rules according to them. And so this is, this is kind of the whole con- religious context in which Jesus finds himself, in which he's establishing his kingdom. There's this whole network of laws called the tradition of the elders. And now we find in Mark chapter uh, 7, Jesus is going to, and his disciples, they're going to violate another one of these rules. We find this at the beginning of uh, chapter 7, verses 1. It says, the Pharisees, some of the other teachers of the law, they had come from Jerusalem. They had gathered around Jesus and saw that some of his disciples were eating Hands that were defiled, that is, were unwashed. They hadn't ceremoniously purified their hands, which made their hands unclean as they touched food. Now, there was no rule. God had not given a command about washing your hands in the Old Testament. It didn't exist. There was one condition that a priest, before he ate some of the sacrifice that had been brought to the temple, had to purify his hands, but that was it. But they had extracted from this and added all of these purity laws about one had to do, and it wasn't just about hands. Mark elaborates and he talks about how, you know, they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles, and they had this whole complex system to ensure that they would stay clean and not become unclean. And Jesus and his disciples, they broke one of the rules. And so they questioned him, why are you breaking the rule about the washing of hands? Now, it's interesting, Jesus actually doesn't answer the question. He doesn't talk about washing of hands again. Because to Jesus, that's not really the issue. That would be like treating the symptom and not the cause, the root of the problem. And so, Jesus is going to go to the very root of the problem and show them that their whole approach to God's law was flawed. They totally misunderstand, misunderstood what God's law was, how it functioned. 
And so he responds by saying that Isaiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. And then these are the words recorded in Isaiah, but these are the words of God. When God says, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, for their teachings are merely human rules. And then Jesus adds, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions, literally holding on to the traditions of men. And so we see this dichotomy. They had referred, the Pharisees had referred to the traditions of the elders, a very noble, respectable term, but Jesus doesn't use that. He uses this kind of pejorative. He says, he calls them not the traditions of the elders, but the traditions of men, not the things of God. He says, why are you holding on to the traditions of men and letting go of the commands of God. And then he uses an example for what that looked like. He says, you have a fine uh, way of setting aside the the commands of, of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. I'll just let that sit there for all the kids in the room for a moment, and especially mine. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that's just a transliteration of that Aramaic word. So it, it, it was a word that when you said it over a piece of property or something, it like made that thing holy. That thing belonged to God. That thing was now holy, korban. He says when, 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 you, when someone, you say when someone says korban over something, they can no longer use that thing to help their mother or father. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and you do many other things like that. And we'll take a look at one or two others. And so I think the first thing that Jesus is showing us here is he's saying, don't put your traditions above the commands of God. Don't put the traditions of man, mankind, over the commands of God. Maybe some of you heard this in the news, the scandal down in a Catholic church in Arizona, down in Phoenix here in the last few weeks, um, when, uh, when a bunch of people found out that, that they weren't actually baptized, thousands of people found out that their baptism was invalidated because their priest, unbeknownst to him, had used one wrong word in the invocation when he did the baptism. He's supposed to say, I baptize you, but since 1995, when he started his ministry, I guess he missed, he slept through that part of the seminary class or something. Um, he, had, he had always said, we baptize you. And so they, they decided, well, what do we, what do, we do? Like, this, was not, this is not the proper wording. And so they made a decision that all of his baptisms, thousands, were invalidated. And this created other problems because, you know, to be, to be baptized in that church or to be married, you have to be a baptized Catholic. And now we realize that we weren't unbaptized, and, and now, now it's questioning the validity of marriages, in this system, and, and we might look at that and we go, oh my goodness, that's the, putting the traditions of men maybe over the things of God, and maybe we, we think that's crazy, but, but we're susceptible to do the same thing too, like to cling to, like there's nothing bad about traditions. Traditions are good. Maybe traditions are necessary, right? Like r- traditions enrich our lives, but we, we can take these traditions that help serve another purpose, and they can become the purpose in themselves to perpetuate them, and they can become rigid, and we hold other people to those traditions, and they can actually get in the way of doing what God calls us to do, get in the way of His mission in serving Him and others. 
the way we think about our forms as a church. Don't you know that the organ is God's ordained instrument for worship? And churches fought that battle. Don't you know that God wants you to wear a suit and a tie? I had one on yesterday up here. Where, does, where is it written? Like we, we have to be careful that we don't put our traditions and impose them over the commands of God. But, you know, we, all, we have to be careful of making sacred cows. And I think we're okay. We're susceptible. But, but I don't want to really rest there because I think that's kind of the obvious thing. Jesus is actually doing more here that would be unsettling to them because he's not just challenging the, the added traditions they had made. He's challenging how they actually thought of and interpreted the actual commands of God that God had written and showing that their approach to God's law itself was all wrong. They didn't really know what it was and how to obey it. And they, see, they thought that the law was the end in itself. And what Jesus is showing them here and he's showing us is that no command of God is the end in itself. Every command that God has given is a means to an end. And we dare not confuse that distinction. To the Pharisees, the law was the end. But to Jesus, he said, this is not the end. This is the means to the end. Don't forget the end, what it's for. Don't be fixated on the what and forget the why, because every command has a why. Why is it there? Jesus says that they have missed the heart. They were worried about being clean on the outside, their hands, their skin, their bodies, and yet their hearts were unclean. They thought that they were law keepers, extraordinaire, but Jesus is about to show them, you are law breakers, extraordinaire. You can almost understand why they would want to put an end to this Jesus. He says this in verse 14, he says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by what goes into them, rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for, verse 21, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil comes out, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, and on and on. Cleanliness is not something that happens externally. It's something that begins internally and then makes its way out. The law is about the heart. What, what matters to God is the heart. And the heart is that place, that center of you, that home for your desires, for your values, your emotions, your priorities, your motivations. God is concerned about the heart. The law is about the heart. And so the Pharisees, they were so fixated on the what of the law that they forgot the why. They were fixated on the letter and neglected the spirit. And because they neglected the spirit, they, unbeknownst to them, actually violated the law of God. And we see this as an example in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, Matthew chapter 23. He's, Jesus has taken these same guys to tax, task, and he uses some pretty strong language. He says in verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, 
But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They were caught up in mental and cumin when they should have been thinking about justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a net, but you swallow a camel. And so he's talking about this, this law, Old Testament law, about giving to God a tenth, the tithe. And he says, you are so focused on making sure that you give exactly that tenth, that, that, you, that you harvest your dill, and, and you weigh it out carefully to make sure that you're not even a tenth of a gram too little on dill. And I'm going to guess they probably measured it so that they also weren't a tenth of a, of a gram too much either. So that you can do that, and then you can check the box and say, Done. Please God, law keeper. He says, you don't have any idea what that's about. You have missed God's purpose behind it, which was to lead us to become generous people. People of justice, people of mercy, generosity. So he says, like you, 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 you give a tenth of your garden herbs, but then you walk down the street and, there, and there's the, the homeless man standing there, the crippled man looking for some help or a neighbor in need, and you go, I've already done my part. They had fixated on the what and neglected the why. You know, it's interesting here. Jesus actually does away with some of the commands of God. Do you note that he said... um, It's not what comes into a person or what they touch that makes them unclean. It's what comes out of a person. And then Mark adds this little footnote uh, when he said that what Jesus was saying is that he was making all food clean. He was actually doing away with those dietary laws that governed cleanliness there in the Old Testament. And it's important that we don't miss what's happening here. You see, what Jesus is saying is when the why disappears, when that law ceases to, to... to have that play that function. When the why disappears, the what disappears. The law disappears. The law becomes dead. And he says, I have come, and I've come to fulfill the law. No longer are you to bring sacrifices to the temple to offer them to God for the forgiveness of your sins because I am the perfect sacrifice once for all. I'm doing away with that system, that whole system of dietary rules and, and, and days you have to observe in order to be right with God. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of that. And when the real thing comes, when the sun rises, the shadow disappears. And you know, there is this, just kind of as a side note, there is a bit of a troubling movement that that I see in some corners of the Christian church, this, this desire to return to a complex system of Old Testament, like abiding by certain purity laws and food laws and stuff as if, as if God for eternity all times in his very nature doesn't want us to eat this but wants us to eat that and wants us to do this on that day but not on that day. And that's antithetical to the kingdom of God. When the why disappears, so does the what. And so Jesus in himself, he said he is setting aside, he has fulfilled all those mandates that bring cleanliness. Now cleanliness comes from him. Which we'll see in a moment. So Jesus is saying, the law is not the end, it is the means to the end. Do not just fixate yourself on the letter, but the spirit of the law. What is the heart of God's commands? What is the heart, ultimately? 
Jesus will give it a few chapters later in, in Mark chapter 12. Um, one of these teachers of the law comes to him and asks Jesus a question and says, um, Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus answers, this is Mark 12, 29. He says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are starting to catch on. To understand that the law is love. That every law at its source is, comes from love for God and love for others. In fact, in, in Matthew's recording of this instance, he adds another statement of Jesus. After Jesus says, these are the two com- greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. And then Jesus says, all the law and the prophets, that is all the Old Testament, everything else, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. They all rest on these. This is the foundation of everything on which everything else is built. If you want to keep the building and remove the foundation, it'll crumble. It doesn't work. Every other command is but an expression, a manifestation, an outworking of these two commands, to love the Lord your God with your whole being and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the heart of the law, every law. And Paul would put it this way in Romans 13. He would just make this abundantly clear. Romans 13, verses 8 to 10, Paul says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit uh, adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself, for love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the, say it, fulfillment of the law. All God's commands are summed up in love your neighbor as yourself and love God with your whole being. You know, in heaven, this is the great thing about heaven, there's not going to be like a long list of rules in heaven, right? In a place where love dwells perfectly, there is no need for rules because every command that God would give to us would be a way of expressing love for Him and love for others. That is the source. That's the heart. The law is about love. And so if you go back to Mark chapter 3, in this instance when Jesus is taken to task because he breaks the rules about the Sabbath, Jesus says, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, for man's good. Not a burden, but a blessing. And then he's in the, he's in the synagogue in the Sabbath with these leaders, and there was a man with a shriveled hand, and some were looking at Jesus to find a reason to accuse him, so they watched him closely to see if he, would he break God's command by healing the man on the Sabbath? Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? He says, it is good. 
It, it, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Every one of God's laws, every command has as its heart love for, love for Him and love for one another. Love is the fulfillment, it is the summation of the law in the kingdom of God, right? And, and we see this in other places. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in, in the tongue of angels and of men, and I have a faith that moves a mountain, and I can fathom all mysteries, all prophecies, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm just a clanging symbol. I'm just noise. The law is about love, Jesus says. He says to them, you've let go of love. That's your problem. You thought it's just about checking the box. You thought, you thought this whole tithe thing was just about like taking your income, doing a mathematical calculation, you know, times 10%, okay, $178.34. Check. And Jesus isn't condemning them for doing that. He's condemning the spirit behind it, the feeling like they have done what they needed to do. That was it. They had fulfilled the law. But can you imagine if I went to Erica, my, my wife, and I said to Erica, Erica, how much time do I need to spend with you every day just to satisfy you? Seven, 17 minutes? I know she's thinking that's way too much. <laughs> way too much. 17 minutes. Okay. Set my alarm. <laughs> oh, thank God. That's over. See ya. Going to hang with the boys. Okay. Would my wife feel honored? What? How much? Like, what's the minimum I need to give to you to satisfy you? Like, for your birthday, like, what's the smallest gift I could get away with and still be okay? Love doesn't ask that question, right? Love doesn't ask the question, what must I do? Love always asks the question, what can I do? What can I do for you? What can I do for my neighbor? What can I do for God? Love is the fulfillment of the law. And they'd forgotten that. They were keeping the letter in a way that neglected the spirit. And we can do that too. We can do that too. Okay, you're not cheating on your spouse. That's good. But are you loving your spouse? Okay, you're not abusing your kids. You, you know, you're taking care of all of their earthly needs, material needs. But are you loving your kids? Okay, you're not stealing from your neighbor. But are you loving your neighbor? Okay, you're not murdering your enemy. Good. But are you loving your enemy? Okay, you're going to church on a regular basis and maybe even doing your devos. Good. But are you loving God with your whole being? Is that what animates all you do? That's another level. That's another level. And if you think of God's law in those terms, doesn't that make you, doesn't that make you kind of rethink what sin is? What is sin? Sin is to fall short of being completely loving 
to God with all your whole being and loving your neighbor as yourself. And if that's what that is, then doesn't that, doesn't that kind of make sense why Paul would say in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's standard of His glory? Of course. Because it's to love with our whole being, Him and others. And we have fallen so short that we are so unclean in our hearts. If, if, if that's... If that's what God was looking for, love, total love, then we could never be assured like the Pharisees were that we were law keepers, that we were self-assured on our own righteousness as they were so self-assured. If we recognize that sin is a false short of love, we would recognize how impure our hearts are. We would recognize how deep our problem actually goes. It's not just a matter of tinkering around the edges. It's wholesale change and transformation. We would understand how in need of God's mercy we truly are. And the good news is that in Christ we receive that mercy. Romans 5.8, Paul says, God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were sinners, not loving God as we ought, not loving others as we ought, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The only completely clean and pure one came and he lived a life that we could not live, that we fell short of. And on that cross, he died to pay our debt to God, the debt of our unlovingness. And he did that for us so that we could be clean. So that through his death on our behalf, that we could receive by God's grace through faith in Jesus, forgiveness. And this is the good news, that, that God declares us clean through the cleanliness of Jesus when the unclean one reaches out to touch the unclean one to make them clean because that's the way it works in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is showing us here is there's this great reversal. Because they thought that something that was clean, when it came into contact with something that was unclean, the clean thing was made unclean by the unclean thing. That sounded confusing. Right? A clean thing is made unclean by an unclean. What Jesus is saying is, no, a clean thing makes the unclean thing clean when it touches it. And he showed this over and over again already in the Gospel of Mark, near the beginning, chapter 1, I think. He comes in contact with a leper. If, if you knew the law of God to be a leper, to have a skin disease, meant you were ceremonially unclean. That guy couldn't go to the temple. If you touched a leper, you were unclean. You couldn't go to the temple. And what does Jesus do? Stay over there, buddy. I have the power. I actually don't even need to touch you. I can just say, be clean. But it, he didn't do that. When it says, he touched the leper, and he said, be clean. And Jesus brings his cleanliness, and when he touches the unclean thing, he doesn't become unclean. The unclean thing becomes clean. And when that bleeding woman comes to him, Mark chapter 5, I believe it is, you know that one who's had menstrual bleeding for 12 consecutive years every day, which made her unclean for 12 consecutive years because a woman during that time in her month, when she was bleeding, she was unclean. 
She, in those days, she couldn't go to the temple. Anything she touched was unclean, which was why in those days, a woman in that time of her month, she would, like if, if she sat on a couch and she got up and I sat on that couch, I would now be unclean. So they had to actually had to carry around a pillow, the unclean pillow, right, just not to not file anything else. So she'd sit on the unclean pillow, then she would take the pillow with her so as not to make anything unclean. And this woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years comes and touches Jesus, and in that moment, he makes her clean. And he doesn't become unclean. And then, and then verses later, he touches that little girl who had died. She was 12 years old. He touched her body, we're told. He took her hand. He could have said, get up. He didn't have to touch her body. It says he took her hand. And according to the law, if you touch a corpse, you are unclean. But it did make Jesus unclean. He was rewriting the law. He's God. And so he took her hand and he said, little girl, get up. And he made her whole. You see, we see this reversal in the kingdom of God. It's not that a clean thing is made unclean by the unclean thing. It's that a clean thing cleans the unclean thing. And this is the good news of the gospel. We are so unclean in our hearts. We have fallen so short of God's love. But when we are touched by Jesus, this is the promise of God. When we repent of our sin and put our faith in Him, God makes us clean. He forgives all our sin. There is no longer, when He looks at us, He just sees us unblemished and blameless. We are not separated from Him because of our uncleanness. But it's even better than that. Not does He just forgive the uncleanliness of our hearts, but He gives us a new heart. He, he, he begins to transform our hearts so that what is birthed in us is love. For God and for others, when you truly encounter the love of God for you, by God's Spirit, He transforms your heart so now you have a heart that's beating in love for God and for others. And so John would say this, record this in his gospel, chapter 13, some of Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. John 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Well, what makes that new, to love one another? The, the, The new part is, as I have loved you, so you're supposed to love one another. This is another level of love. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The law in the kingdom of God is love. And so that same John who received those words when he was an old man and he recorded a letter that we have called 1 John, this is what he writes 1 John 4, uh, 4, 16, he says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone who has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? How can the love of God be in them? What he's saying is when God's love is in you, when you encounter the love of God in the gospel and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he begins a work of transformation in in your heart and gives you a love that you didn't have before for God and for others. That even allows you to love your enemies, to seek their well-being. And so here we have these Pharisees. They believe that others would know they were God's people by the purity of their hands because they washed their pots 
But Jesus says, others will know you are God's people by your love, by the purity of your heart. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom of laws. I mean, God has laws. He has rules. He has commands. The, The command still holds. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not worship any other gods. But but the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of law. It's a kingdom of love. Love is the law. That is the heart of all that we do. Love for God and love for others. And it is easy for us to fall into the trap of the Pharisees, to get pulled into legalism, and just to like reduce our faith in the Christian life just to a set of rules that we can measure, mathematical calculations, things that are black and white, we can check boxes, done, went to church, done, did my devos, done, gave my tithe, done, served at the nursery, done. But the kingdom of God is not a checklist, laws. It is love. So we are not to measure ourselves or others by external purity laws that we make. God is not impressed by those. And we really need to humble ourselves because we're living in a time right now in our society, and it's affected every church to one degree or another, where we are prone, we are being pulled into creating external purity laws on both sides. Well, to not wear a mask is to be clean, and to wear a mask is to be unclean. Or to wear a mask is to be clean, and to not wear a mask is to be unclean. And we just kind of reduce it to these symbols, to these signs, to these rules. And Christians ought not to do that. Because that dismisses the heart of everything, which is love. And honestly, you know, coming through this season, each one of us individually and as a church, we're really going to have to like be willing to humble ourselves and gaze into our hearts and be honest about what we see. Be honest about what, how we've lived, how we've talked. Has it come from love? Or has it fallen short of love? You know, on March 30th here in this space, that's a Wednesday evening, we're holding an, well, it's going to be a whole day of prayer and fasting we're going to invite you as the church into, but um, here on the evening of Wednesday, March 30th, we're going to have an evening here of prayer and worship, and that's really going to be the focus of our time, to come together and just to humble ourselves before God and before one another, and to um, seek forgiveness where it's needed, repent where it's needed, to seek healing and restoration, to make love the main thing, again, because that's the way of the kingdom. So bringing this to a close, this is the question for you to ponder. Is there any area of your life, any relationship, any area of your life where you have fallen short of love as the rule? Love as the motive? Where you've been focusing on the hands instead of the heart, where you've been more concerned with the letter of the law, but you have neglected the spirit. Is there any way, any area where you have fallen short of love? Love of God with your whole being and love of your neighbor as yourself.
Any area in your life that isn't being at where your actions or your words are not being animated by the love of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. That's what Jesus is saying. It's about the heart. God is interested in the heart. All that matters is that we love the Lord our God with our whole heart and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we do those things, there is no need for any other law. For love is the law. Let's pray. God, we humbly come before you. Um, I, I think we all have to acknowledge that if, if that's what you've called us to, is to love you with our whole being, with all of our motives, our actions, with all of our thoughts, with all of our words, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. then God, we are in need of your mercy. Or we have fallen short. And we confess that. Or we have not loved like you love, as we ought. Um, but God, we thank you that you don't leave us there in that place of guilt, goodness, but that you have made a way to be clean through your son, Jesus. We just thank you, Lord, that you are love and that you have expressed your love for us through your son who did all the work for us so that we might be clean. God, we thank you for that forgiveness of our sins, that life that you give us, that knowledge that we belong to, and there's nothing that stands between us, that you are with us, that you are for us, but that also you, by your Spirit, you are at work in our hearts and our minds, enabling us, empowering us to love you and to love others the way that we ought, the way you call us to. And so we just invite you again as a whole church family, as individuals, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and to continue the work of renewal and transformation in, in the center of us, in our hearts, Lord, just to allow us, to grow in us, love for you and love for others, for nothing else matters. This we pray in your Son's name. Amen.